This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Howdy and welcome to Portable Peds, the Pediatric Board of View podcast. Today we've got a great episode to wrap up our month on adolescent medicine, talking about gender dysphoria. As always, I'm your host, Ryan, and I identify as he, him, his pronouns. And I'm our guest host for the month, Namisha Bajaj, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm just going to let Namisha take it away. Okay. So this case is a 15-year-old transgender male who comes to the clinic for a well visit and for referral to the transgender health clinic. While his mother is in the room for the first part of the visit, you notice he's appropriate, but more quiet and subdued, and you can see he's not answering questions fully. His PHQ-9, or depression screen, is elevated, and he suffers from insomnia, both of which concern his mother. She also continually refers to him as she and by the name assigned at birth. When his mother leaves the room, his affect changes completely, and he is bubbly and engaging. He is interested in testosterone therapy and access to a binder but he knows his mother would not approve. In fact, he acknowledges that this is what's causing his dysphoria and insomnia. He states he wants to be fully himself, but does not want to ruin his relationship with his mother. Now for the question. Transgender adolescents are likely to experience an increased risk of which of the following? A, suicide, B, depression, C, physical violence, D, systemic oppression, or E, all of the above. We'll give you a few seconds to pause the podcast, peruse the question and the answer choices, and we'll see you in a bit. Welcome back, everybody. The correct answer to this question is E, all of the above. For this episode, we're not going to go through the answer choices individually like we typically do, but just go into transgender healthcare in general. In 2021, so far, there have been 82 bills introduced into state legislatures in the United States that would impact the rights of transgender people. This is the most of any year in history. But why is this important for us to know about as pediatricians? Of note, the following data and statistics come from studies conducted in the United States of America, but this data is likely applicable worldwide. Approximately 0.7% of adolescents in the United States identify as transgender, amounting to about 150,000 people. Many of us will see these patients in our practices, and we need to be able to provide them with adequate care. However, among all transgender and gender nonconforming participants of a 2018 National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 24% of participants said they experienced discrimination and denial of treatment in doctor's offices or hospitals, 13% in emergency rooms, 11% in mental health clinics, and 5% for emergency medical services. They also reported harassment and being disrespected in these locations. Additionally, as mentioned previously, many state legislatures are aiming to limit transgender rights. Some of these bills would make it illegal to provide gender-affirming therapy to transgender minors. 
The motivation for this is that children can have a fluid gender identity, and they do not want to allow irreversible harm from therapy in case they change their mind. However, many children establish their gender identity by the time they're four years old. Importantly, increased risk of adverse health outcomes is not due to the gender dysphoria or fluidity itself, but due to the discrimination these youth face at home, at school, and in society, including by healthcare professionals. In fact, in one study, the risk of suicide attempt among transgender youth was 4% when patients were accepted by their parents, but up to 60, 60% when they were not. They also had increased chance of risky behavior, including prostitution, homelessness, drug and alcohol abuse, and use of illegally obtained hormones if they did not experience family acceptance. The U.S. Transgender Survey showed that among nearly 28,000 respondents of those that were out as or perceived to be transgender between kindergarten and eighth grade, 54% were verbally harassed, 24% were physically assaulted, 13% were sexually assaulted, and 17% left school because of mistreatment. Remember that these are school-aged children who are treated like this. A 2015 survey by GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, found that 43% of children who identified as LGBTQ felt unsafe at school because of their gender expression, but only 6% of schools had policies to support youth who identified as transgender, and 11% of schools had anti-bullying policies that protected for gender expression. One in five students reported being hindered from forming or participating in a club to support lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender students, even though these clubs are associated with increased feelings of safety and lower levels of victimization. So what do we do? The first thing we need to do as pediatricians is to establish a safe, non-judgmental space for all of our adolescent patients. The patient in this case was only able to adequately express his concerns when his mother was not in the room. Additionally, we need to respect our patients by using their chosen pronouns. It seems trivial, but helps to build trust and improve the patient-provider relationship. More importantly, it is also a way of acknowledging the adolescent's humanity. Unfortunately for this patient, he would require parental consent for gender-affirming treatment, including testosterone and menstrual suppression, and eventually surgery if that is what he decided that he wants. In some states with these new laws, he would be unable to receive any treatment at all, even with parental approval, until he turns 18. And as we talked about, this can lead to higher risk of suicide, depression, physical violence, systemic oppression, and other risky behaviors. This is a complicated issue, but it's important to remember that these are children who deserve care and dignity. Allowing them to live a life within their gender includes providing gender-affirming care, using their pronouns, helping them participate in support groups, improving medical education, and destigmatization of transgender individuals and gender nonconformity. All of these interventions have been shown to decrease the rate of depression, suicidality, and high-risk behavior, and improve health outcomes. And that is what we want for all of our teenagers. Well, that was an excellent talk, Namisha. Thanks so much for your help this month. We have one more episode next week where we talk about a review from the entire month as a whole. Also, we talked about a lot of United States things today, and we want to thank our worldwide audience, especially our folks out in Australia, France, the UK, the Philippines, and Israel. But thanks so much. This was a really important topic for us to talk about, as it is topically relevant, and these patients deserve our respect. Thanks so much again, Namisha, for composing all four of the cases you guys have seen this month. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for having me, guys.